podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Dr. Karen Majewski, a CEW Towsley Scholar from 1991. The scholarship is named for Margaret Dow Towsley. The life and work of Towsley opened countless doors for women and children and immeasurably improved the life of the Ann Arbor community. An active political leader, Towsley became the first woman elected to the Ann Arbor City Council. Her quiet and sustained support nourished the CEW scholarship program since its founding over 50 years ago and continues in perpetuity because of the Towsley Endowment. Today, it feels especially appropriate to be speaking with you, Karen, as you carry forward Margaret's political engagement legacy so well as the first female mayor of Hamtramck, Michigan. Karen's PhD at Michigan focused on the study of immigration and ethnicity, and she has had deep roots in the fabric of Hamtramck long before she was first elected mayor 16 years ago. Karen, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us your story, including how you came to call Hamtramck, Michigan, home? Sure. Thank you. So I'm Karen Hayefsky. I came to Hamtramck really by way of U of M. As you mentioned, I came to U of M to study immigration and ethnicity and especially to focus on Polish immigration. And, of course, I wanted to live in a place that was full of immigrants and especially that had a existing Polish community. So having grown up in the Chicago area, you know, Hamtramck really ticked all the buttons for me. And it was the closest thing that I could find to an old-style ethnic Chicago neighborhood. I actually lived for 10 years on the Detroit side of the border. If you know Hamtramck at all, you know that one side of the street can be Detroit and one side Hamtramck. Mm -hmm. So I actually lived in Detroit for 10 years, half a block over the border. But, you know, Hamtramck was my neighborhood. It was the place where I did my business, had my social life. It was my neighborhood. So when I finished my degree in 1998, we bought a house and moved over to the Hamtramck side. Yeah, for listeners who might not be familiar with the size and diversity of Hamtramck, can you tell us about your community that's often described as the first Muslim-majority city in the United States? Well, <laughs> Hamtramck is a really interesting place, and it's so interesting that we get the uh, reporters and researchers from all over the world studying us. We're just 2.2 square miles, but we're an independent city completely surrounded by the city of Detroit, except for one little corner that touches on Highland Park, but it's actually not accessible because of the industrial area there. So really, we're completely surrounded by the city of Detroit. And we're kind of an old school ethnic community. We grew out of the auto industry. And up until the 1990s, we were predominantly Polish, but there had been immigrants from all over the world settling in Hamtramck from its earliest days. We have an old-fashioned kind of walkable downtown, traditional downtown with a lot of mostly actually independent family-owned businesses. We don't have any chain stores, except maybe for a couple dollar stores or in the bank and a subway and checkers. We don't even have a McDonald's. It's basically all locally owned businesses. Our houses sit on 30-foot 
flat, so we're right on top of each other. In fact, we are the most densely populated city in the state of Michigan, with over 25,000 people in those two square miles. More than half of our residents speak a language other than English at home, and there are a couple of dozen languages spoken in the school system in Hamtramck. So, you know, traditionally Hamtramck had been for nearly 100 years mainly Polish-American, Polish ethnic community with a lot of other people there, including an African-American community that actually predates the Polish community with, you know, all the folks basically who were drawn by the auto industry. You know, we brag now that we've got 20-something languages spoken in the schools, but in the 1920s, we actually had 50-something languages spoken in the schools. Wow. So what's, yeah, yeah. But what's really changed is kind of the balance of that demographic. So in the 1990s, we started to get a noticeable influx of immigrants from places that hadn't traditionally been represented in Hamtramck. In the 1990s, the Bangladeshis began to come. And then with the Balkan Wars, we had an influx of emigres from Bosnia. There's been a Yemeni presence here since about the 1970s, but that's substantially grown in the last 10 years with the civil war in Yemen. The Ukrainian community has been here for 100 years, but we're also seeing an increase in that community because of the unrest in Ukraine. And as I said, the African-American community has been here you know, for over 100 years. Also in the 1990s, a really interesting change in our demographic was that we began to get an enormous influx, and I actually I consider myself part of this migration of artists and other kind of countercultural types moving into the city. And all of that has really changed the demographic of Hamtramck, changed the political makeup of our government, and kind of transformed uh, the city while still keeping it, you know, that kind of close-knit, urban, dense, immigrant, diverse, walkable community. Did I hit all the buttons of all the things <laughs> we love about Hamtramck? You know, the decline in the Polish population here has a number of factors. I mean, folks die off, right? And then, of course, in, you know, there was a big outflux in the 50s and 60s and 70s with the move to the suburbs and all of that. So all of that has kind of that those changing dynamics, uh, you know, on the international stage in American social and political policy and all of that, as well as our national life cycles, has really contributed to the kind of demographic change in Hamtramck. But I think without changing who we are, essentially, in the kind of city we are, in 2017, I think it was 2017, Hamtramck elected a Muslim-majority city council, and that got a lot of press and still evokes a lot of interest from outside. But, you know, I think that there's a tendency and a danger to talk about a Muslim-majority council as a monolith, you know, I would say, you know, most cities are Christian majority, right? But mm -hmm. we don't talk about them in that way. So, you know, the various Muslim communities in Hamtramck, you know, they bring different histories, they bring different practices, different cultures, languages, they immigrated under different circumstances. And also, you know, within each of those communities, there are all kinds of internal divisions and fissures as well. So I'm really cautious about kind of talking about a Muslim majority, this or that, because it's vastly more complicated than that and more rich and interesting. Mm -hmm. 
One of the things you said stood out to me. So I've got a couple follow-up questions, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, one is I'm really curious, what makes Hamtramck hospitable for immigrants, like through policies, practices, location? What is the secret sauce there? And then the second thing is you mentioned community is so strong and it continues to be strong with highly changing populations. Like that seems to be contradictory. I was wondering if you could speak to both of those. You know, one of the things that attracts people here, no matter what the background, is that it's relatively affordable. Uh -huh. So that's one factor. For instance, the Bangladeshi immigration in the 1990s was largely spurred by the affordability and then, of course, chain migration, as well as for artists. You know, mm -hmm. people can afford to live here. And you don't necessarily need a car to do your daily business in Hamtramck. You know, all the things that make kind of a physically cohesive and affordable neighborhood attract people here. But also that sense that because you live on top of each other, right, because, you know, you can pass a plate of food between one house and the next, you know, kitchen window, even if you don't speak the same language as your neighbor, you feel connected just to a neighborhood, to a community here. And that's something that I have not seen in any of the other places that I've lived. One person in Hamtramck can make a difference on a block. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, you know, ability to actually have an impact in your community, because we're so small and we're so interconnected and we're so physically close to each other. We hear each other's languages. We smell each other's foods. You know, we argue with each other over our parking places. But all of that creates a sense of being part of something bigger than yourself in which your presence makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, it grows out of the physical infrastructure of Hamtramck, but it's also kind of built into how we think of ourselves. I've talked about this a lot to people, and I always stress that it's not the Epcot Center, right? It's not Disneyland. There are plenty of conflicts and, you know, competitions for power and influence. And, you know, we're just kind of in the midst of a big pride flag argument in Hamtramck. So, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, we're all joining hands and singing Kumbaya together. But because we're so close to each other, you know, we're shopping in the same stores, we're living next door to each other, et cetera, you know, it kind of forces you to learn to live together. And that's a really, really healthy thing at the same time that it can be challenging and mind-expanding. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine that your research has influenced who you are. You know, you already talked about how it impacted where you're living. How has your research impacted who you are as a leader in that community? Well, it's really enriched my understanding of the kind of dynamics of the various communities in Hamtramck. And I think it made me better able to navigate kind of the internal, internal ethnic and ethnic processes and, you know, politics of the city. It gave me, I think, an understanding of and a sympathy for those processes and, you know, for processes like chain migration, for instance, for mm -hmm. uh, intergenerational issues you know, between parents and children, parents, mm -hmm. children growing up in an American school system and their parents, or children who have to be translators of language and of culture for their parents the kind of transnational interests that keep you with one foot in the homeland and one foot in America. The kind of creation and continual recreation of ethnic 
organizational life as you know different leaders emerge within the communities and jockey for power and some of sometimes those conflicts are regional in ways that you know if you're outside the community you would never imagine you don't know the difference between Salette and Chittagong, right? Mm-hmm. But you know that's really stealing for our Bangladeshi immigrants. So that kind of background of knowledge or sensitivity or awareness has really helped me kind of be sympathetic toward and understand the stuff that's going on inside the ethnic communities that is not visible to most people outside. But, you know, it's not just an academic understanding or awareness that I bring to my work. It's just that this stuff really interests me. (laughs) And it's really fascinating to watch, you know, as challenging as it can be to navigate, because I don't necessarily know what politics are going on in Yemen right now Mm -hmm. and who's on what side and who's competing with whom. Uh But it's really interesting to me, and it's validated in my approach to dealing with everybody. Uh-huh. Yeah, so in decisions that you have to make on a daily basis or policies that you put in place, how does that understanding play a role in your decision-making that leads to these very he- what sound like very healthy conversations through mm-hmm. what could be potentially much more conflict-ridden? Well, that's hard to say because the mayor's role is you know, limited by charter. Uh-huh. And, you know, we have a strong council and city manager form of government and the mayor is just one piece of that and not even the strongest piece so Uh for instance you know we passed a resolution years ago long before trump basically a policy forbidding our police department from making inquiries about immigration status Uh Uh, you know unless it's relevant to whatever you know investigation they're doing or something like that So, you know, something like that was something that was really important to me because I'm very sensitive to the situation for undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. And not just undocumented, but, you know, any immigrants and how intimidating a police force can be Mm -hmm. based on what, you know, their experiences in their homeland. So it's policies like that that help influence, that I'm one cog in the process of influencing this that I think, you know, reflects my background and my training and my interests and my sensitivities. But that said, you know, I just mentioned the um, pride flag issue here. And I had to break a tie vote to allow the pride flag to be flown from the city flagpole in front of City Hall. And that has in some ways been painted as an ethnic issue with three Muslim city council people voting for, three voting against, two voting for, and then one nondescript American, right, voting for. And I had to break that tie. And so there's a lot of discussion, a lot of argument going on right now, especially in the Yemeni community, about disrespect for, you know, traditional values, et cetera, and for this large ethnic community that, you know, certain spokespeople want to claim are against the pride flag. We don't know that for sure, and I'm not sure that the folks who are saying that are, you know, authorized or qualified to speak for the whole Yemeni community. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, 
know, I bring my own understanding and sensitivities and training, et cetera, to my policy decisions. But on the other hand, I will listen to everyone and hearing those arguments. But in the end, I have my own moral compass and my own belief about what's best for the city that finally has to be the basis of my final decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you look back over the 16 years you've been mayor, what stands out as like what you're most proud of? Most proud of, I think, telling the story of Hamtramck in a way that's positive and nuanced, but not Pollyanna-ish. You know, especially as so much attention has been focused on Hamtramck, starting with the call to prayer issue in 2004 when I was city council president. It was a different charter then, so the city council president basically ran the show in terms of an ordinance back then. So since then, we've had so much attention. And one of the primary roles of the mayor under the charter that we have is to be the spokesperson for the city. So if I can tell the story of the city in a way that, without sugarcoating anything, points out the ways in which we work out our difficulties and the, and the sometimes noisy and fractious and painful ways that, that we work out these problems. And the pride flag is an example of that right now. I think that people can take that uh, around the world, really, can take that as a, not exactly a model, but at least an example of how those tough negotiations between differing constituencies can work in a world where demographics are changing everywhere and the makeup of the country and the makeup of of not just the United States is changing. Mm -hmm. So people are looking for guidance on how can we make this work? How might this contribute to cohesion in my community rather than division? And, you know, there are no easy answers to that, but Hamtramck is a good example of how we do it kind of on the ground day to day and, you know, not perfectly but how we struggle to make it work. Because we're such a small community, two square miles, you can kind of wrap your arms around that, the Hamtramck example. And, you know, out of the many things that have happened in the last 16 years, 18 if you count my two years on city council before that, in my, you know, 18 years of public service, I think that that's the most important role that I've played in telling that Hamtramck story that story of diversity and accommodation and working out an inclusive America. I think that that's the most important work that I've done. Mm, Yeah, that's amazing, important work. You know, it's interesting how such a small community, I mean, you keep mentioning the 2.2 square miles. When you put that in context, that is really small with 25,000 people. That Mm -hmm. your town is serving as a representative model of inclusion. Like, that's pretty remarkable that such a small place is having such a large impact on national conversation. Um, it is remarkable. And people in Hamtramck, I think, are well aware of that role that they play and proud of it, too, I think. Mm-hmm. It's part of our identity. Even the folks, you know, who maybe complain the most still point with pride to our diversity. Even when we're not welcoming, they take pride in being welcoming, having that as our goal. Uh-huh. It's a pretty good goal for all of us to have, honestly. (laughs) This past year has been quite something. I don't know how in your past 18 years, as you point out, of civic service, like how it has been different for you throughout the pandemic. 
but have you noticed any changes in your own behavior or your thought process as a leader as a result of the pandemic? Well, I don't know that it's really changed me, but I felt early on in the pandemic that, you know, at the local level, we don't have a lot of control, right? The federal government is making decisions, uh, not always good ones in the past. The state and the county are basically setting the regulations. So we don't have a lot of control over, like, you know, the kind of logistics of how the pandemic is handled in ways that affect us. But I felt that I had an obligation to be a steady voice to my constituents to make sure everybody got current information, to let them know that, you know, as isolating as the situation is, that we can still connect. And, of course, that connection in a community this small is, again, part of who we are and what draws us here. So starting in March of 2020, last year, when we first went into lockdown, I started doing a daily Facebook Live broadcast. Mm-hmm like 15 or 20 minutes letting people know, you know, how many cases we had from the day before, uh, whether anybody in the city had died from COVID and what we knew about that, what regulations um, they needed to follow, what grants or other financial opportunities there were out there and how to access them, where they could get free food. So just a steady voice that People could depend on to get, like, the most current information every day and keep us connected. We're all listening together, right, to this, you know, kind of like a fireside chat in a way. So since then, eventually I switched from a daily broadcast. You can imagine what that was like, 8.30 every morning (laughs) for months. I switched to a weekly, and I still do the weekly Facebook Live every Monday morning with our local COVID update. So over a year now. Wow. Yep. (laughs) That's a commitment. (laughs) What advice would you give to anyone who's considering engaging civically in their community? There are so many ways to get involved and so much need. You know, just look to the things that interest you and excite you and that, that you have a passion about. And there are other people who no doubt share that and want to see things done. Especially with social media, it's not hard to find those like-minded people mm-hmm. um, these days. And I know that there's a like a general distrust of politicians and institutions, et cetera, but folks can create their own institutions and their own groups and their own cohorts. And the existing institutions, those are one way of making things happen, you know, politics or, you know, I always try to encourage people to get involved in existing community groups because it doesn't help to have 20 groups, some of them competing for the same resources and the same people power, you know, see what other people are already working on and see how you can fit in. I'm always trying to recruit people for uh, city commissions and organizations like that, which can be challenging because that means that you're under the Open Meetings Act, you can't just meet in the bar, right? You have to open your meeting to everyone. And I mean, now you can do it on Zoom, so it's a lot easier. And I think that civic engagement actually has gotten a lot easier with the Zoom capability because, you know, now anybody can tune in and say their piece and connect logistically in a lot easier way. And, you know, I'm just going to say that you make a difference. And, you know, I see it on the ground here in Hamtramck all the time. You know, I see it right now with our Arts and Culture Commission, which was moribund for years, suddenly, you know, oh, there's a new person who's interested in this. Well, all of a sudden, a new person recruits a bunch of her friends. 
and suddenly, you know, we've got uh, new uh, plantings in all the flower boxes in town that, you know, they've managed to facilitate with all these other branches of people, mm-hmm. you know, on the community level, on the local level, you can make such an impact. Your one voice can make such an impact. That's it. You know? <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Now, I know you have a small business. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so I have a vintage clothing store, Tecla Vintage, and I've been buying and selling and wearing uh, vintage clothes since I was in high school in the 70s. So I always did that you know, on the side, no matter what else I was doing. I picked for other stores or, you know, and then when online sales became possible. I've been on eBay for almost 20 years now. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so no matter what else I was doing, there was always this side gig of vintage clothing. But then in... Uh, 2013, the opportunity came to buy a vacant storefront in Hamtramck, an old school, beautiful old storefront and my heart of the business district. And, you know, I realized that I could keep selling out of my basement, right, and make more money without the overhead of a building and, and all of that. But how does that help Hamtramck, right? What cities need are destinations and renovated buildings and, you know, saving old buildings and, you know, making sure that there's a variety of businesses and that people have somewhere to walk to and something to catch their eye when they walk down the street. So it was all about, you know, revitalizing an old downtown, an old school downtown. So, you know, with that in mind, I bought the building and I've been in business there for seven years. So it's just a part of a larger ongoing project of revitalizing Hamtramck and setting an, an example and saving a building. And so now we have like four different places where you can get vintage clothes in Hamtramck. I'm not the first one, but I like to think that I help encourage that business atmosphere and to make us a destination for this little niche, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, I definitely see a through line in your stories, which is, um, yeah. You know, making sure that history, that objects are preserved in time and then telling their story in different ways. You know, you mentioned that through what you're most proud of being specifically engaged in Hamtramck through your work at Tecla Vintage. It's all very consistent themes. I think that the underlying of my life has been recognizing the beauty and the value in things that other people may have overlooked and bringing those things to the forefront, you know, giving them new life or letting them tell their story. And yeah, I think no matter you know what different aspect of my life, that that is a recurring theme. And I'm impressed that you, that you picked that up. <laughs> I think it's one that's close to my own heart, as my partner might tell you. Our basement is filled with stuff that I've salvaged <laughs> and then repurposed or like upcycled and uh, it's a dangerous (laughs) habit so if she listens to this it might lead to a storefront in downtown ipsy (laughs) i'd love to see it (laughs) yeah i have actually thought about it but you're inspiring me to think even more hard about it on top of all this other stuff running a small business being a mayor you've kept yourself engaged in academia how have you woven that into your career well the topic of my dissertation and my and a scholarly passion has been immigrant literature, and especially the literature written in languages other than English by the immigrant generation, just for themselves, you know, that never gets translated. You know, it flies under the radar uh-huh. of American literature, but it grows out of an American immigrant experience, ethnic experience, and it 
you know, completely internal within the community. So that was the subject of my dissertation for Polish immigrants before World War II. And that's something that I would love to get back to. I feel like there's still several books in there, but, you know, time's kind of running out in my life. But I have recently come back onto the board of the Polish American Historical Association, and that's kind of been my academic home base all along. I'm past executive director of that organization. So I just published an article, actually, in the latest issue of their journal. It's uh, Polish American Studies. It just came out like last week. And that article is about abortion in Polish American Detroit and Hamtramck between about 1900 and the 1960s. And again, telling a story that had been forgotten or overlooked or buried was really important to me in researching and publishing that article. Mm -hmm. So that also fits in, even though it's not literary. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also working on an article right now also on Polish political power and kind of the transfer and the trajectory of Polish political power in Hamtramck for publication next year. And, you know, looking at the changing dynamics and the changing population in Hamtramck, what do you think has kept you as the chosen mayor in Hamtramck? What qualities or what do you bring to bear to that community that has really made you the person that they really wanted to lead them? Yeah, I guess we'll find out because um, for re-election this year. <laughs> so we'll see um, if I still have relevance. But I think that basically... It's been the ability to cross boundaries and to build bridges. It's been that openness and understanding of, you know, the experiences of so many different constituencies and the genuine interest in their issues and in their experience. And the ability, I think, you know, as I said before, the ability to tell that story to the world in a way that does honor to their experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you can talk about we paved so many roads and we so many potholes or we uh, placed so many lead water pipes or whatever, but that's a role of government in general, of the administration and the city council and the mayor. But the mayor's particular role is as a spokesperson for the city, and I think that that's what people have seen me do and so far have been pleased with the way I've done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's evidence through all the media coverage. <laughs> Plenty of evidence yeah. there. Finally, part of the intent of the podcast is to encourage listeners to invest time in taking care of themselves. Do you have any self-care practices you can share with us? You know, probably not enough. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I'm not a micromanager. So I look to see what other people do well and then try to empower them to do it and step out of the way. And then I don't worry about it. I've got enough other things to worry about. So I try to keep my focus on the things that I can do well and give other people the chance to shine at what they do well and let them run with it. And that takes a lot off my plate. Uh -huh. You know, also, you know, for anybody in politics, there's a lot of stuff that gets said about you, that angry lies that are told about you or, you know, whatever. And I try to disengage myself from that. I mentioned before that I, I think that, you know, I keep a close eye on what goes on on Facebook and stuff, but I also walk away from the stuff that's hurtful. Mm -hmm. And trying not to respond can be really hard, but not to let it 
eat at my spirit. And, you know, that's kind of just a process of, like, of stepping away and letting other people fight those battles for me if they need to be fought. But I can't let that eat my spirit. And I think, you know, another thing is that in terms of, you know, public life, that I don't make any big secrets about who I am. So people know that I dance, I sing, you know, <laughs> I, I have this life outside of politics and I'm not conflicted between that public and private persona. And I think that that really helps just not to stress you out, trying to hide who you are. Oh, and I don't let anything get in the way no matter what. <laughs> Even if I have to turn off the Zoom camera so I can do it, I don't let anything get in the way of getting in my 10,000 steps a day. <laughs> yeah, well, Karen, I so appreciate having the chance to talk to you. You know, there's a word that keeps coming through my mind as you've been talking across context, which is integrity. I mean, you have so much integrity in who you are and believing in yourself and believing in others and demonstrating to others that it's okay to just bring your full self to wherever mm -hmm. you're at. And that truly is inspiring. And thank you so much for participating in this interview. I really am grateful. Oh, I'm so honored by the opportunity. It came as such a surprise and I'm just really all gratified. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi. 